Shalom, mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word, means family, and we're the mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. With the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man, getting ready, mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar. Oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. As most of you know, I relocated the ministry to Charlotte, North Carolina. And after I got here, just a few days after I got here, I have a cousin that is Jewish and not a believer in Jesus, comes from a strong Jewish background. And I called her up. I said, I'm in Charlotte. She said, well, Sid, you might be interested in going to a, uh, a wonderful debate between a uh, conservative Jewish rabbi and a Christian minister on the differences of the Jewish view of Messiah and the Christian view of Messiah. I said, that sounds wonderful. And I went to the debate, and I have to tell you, I could not believe my ears. I could not believe what the Jewish man had to say. This rabbi, a conservative rabbi, says he doesn't believe that the book of Genesis is inspired by God. Now, if you take the book of Genesis and throw it out of the Bible, and then, by the way, I didn't even find out what he thought about the rest of the Bible, but if the foundation of the Torah is thrown away, uh, what have you got in Judaism? Uh, So I knew there was a problem. He's conservative. Now, if he's reformed, I could understand. But he's conservative, a conservative rabbi. Um, although I just recently read in the paper, and um, my guest, by the way, this week is Dr. Michael Brown, who is also a Jewish believer in the Messiah. He's a Semitic language scholar. Uh, he has his Ph.D. in uh, uh, Near Eastern Languages and Literature uh, from New York University. And, and Mike, I read in the papers uh, that the conservative rab- uh, association in, uh, has decided that uh, homosexuals can now be rabbis. Is yeah, they, that, they've done this in Israel, actually. Yeah, conservative I, is much closer to reform these days. I, now, I, you know, I don't know. In my mind, I can't. I, I still, it, it's, my mind goes tilt when I hear a conservative rabbi say that, that a homosexual can, uh, can, can be a rabbi and be ordained and that the Torah or the book of Genesis in particular isn't even from God. I, I mean, what is Judaism anymore? You see, once we set ourselves up as the ones who decide what's inspired and, and isn't, and while well, this is outdated or outmoded or needs to be reinterpreted, then we become the authorities and God is no longer the authority. And who knows? knows where things will go next. Well, but then, so I, so I listened to the rabbi, and my only conclusion inside, not out loud, was, oi, they, which uh, loosely translated into English is, oi, they. That <laughs> That's works. That's the best that I works. could do. Uh, and then the Christian minister gets up, and he says, you know, I love the rabbi, and the rabbi loves me, and uh, the only way we'll really know for sure who the Messiah is, uh, when he returns, if it turns out to be the Jew Jesus, then we'll all be a one happy family. And I think, oi, they, <laughs> which loosely translated means, What happens to the Jewish people who die before the Messiah returns? 
So it's sort of like a famous rabbi. You, I think you may know him. Uh, this famous rabbi said, if a blind man leads another blind man, won't they both fall into the ditch? The Christian was blind, and the Jewish rabbi was blind. And I got so upset over this uh, that uh, when I found out about your new book, Dr. Michael Brown, I couldn't wait to orchestrate a debate between you and uh, and a rabbi that's probably considered one of the most well-known rabbis in the world. His, his name is Rabbi Shmuley Boteach. Uh, he, he's got a, uh, a TV show on the Learning uh, Channel. Uh, it's called Shalom in the Home. Uh, and uh, what would happen if I had a real Messianic Jewish scholar and a real rabbi debate who is Jesus? Yeah, the thing that's interesting, Rabbi Shmuley and I have known each other over about 10 years. We've had many debates and in the process of time have actually become really good friends, close friends. And he wrote a book, came out earlier this year, called Kosher Jesus. And in his book, he said, look, we Jews need to reclaim Jesus. He was a great rabbi. I'll tell you what, stop for one second. I want to hear what he said in his own words at the debate. Let's hear what Rabbi Shmuley Boteach thinks about Jesus. Well, let me elaborate. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. He was born a Jew. He lived as a Jew. And he died as a Jew. In fact, he was killed for being a Jew. His religion that he practiced throughout his life was Judaism. He kept the Sabbath. Okay, that was Rabbi Shmuley Boteach on who he thinks Jesus is. So Mike Brown came out with a book after Rabbi Boteach came out with his called The Real Kosher Jesus. Boteach's book is Kosher Jesus. Mike's book is The Real Kosher Jesus. Uh, how do you differ from Rabbi Boteach? Oive, uh, what a lighted, <laughs> and Oive loosely means Oive. What so. a loaded question. <laughs> See, he, here's the deal. I was really pleased that Shmuley wrote a book saying that Jews need to recover Jesus. Yes, he was a great Jew. Yes, he was a great Torah teacher. Yes, he was called rabbi. That was not a formal title in that time, but, but a title of, of honor and respect, rabbi, my, my master, my teacher. We agree on that. We agree that much of his teaching has its roots in the Hebrew scriptures and, and that he himself lived a Torah-observant life. We agree on all that, but the most important fundamental things are the things that Shmuley misses. He feels that Jesus died fighting against the Romans, that he was a freedom fighter trying to lead a rebellion against the Romans, believing from miraculous intervention to overthrow Rome. I say the exact opposite. He came as a lamb. He didn't come to launch a violent rebellion. We've seen what happens when religion gets violent. That was not his purpose. His purpose was to come and die as an atoning sacrifice, to overcome evil with good, to overcome hatred with love, not to establish a brand new religion called Christianity, but to fulfill the promises to Moses and the prophets. If you miss him as being the Messiah, then you don't understand why we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. There are plenty of famous Jewish rabbis. There are plenty of Jewish freedom fighters. We're not talking about them around the world today, but we're talking about this rabbi, Yeshua. And here's the most interesting thing, Sid. Shmuley sent me the manuscript last year and said, Mike, can you write an endorsement for it? So I really thought, how am I going to write an endorsement? <laughs> I, di I differ with his main thesis. He, he, he attacks me in the book, but graciously. He has fun, you know, very right. respectfully. But how can, so I, I thought about it. And I thought, all right, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to say, while I passionately disagree with this, 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 and this, I'm so pleased to see an Orthodox rabbi reclaiming Jesus as a fellow Jew and fellow rabbi. And you can call the book, America's Most Famous Rabbi Meets the Most Famous Rabbi of All Time. And he used that endorsement. Well, late January, the book is, is scheduled to come out in Israel, and then it's going to come out in the United States. As soon as word gets out about the book, controversy starts swirling. Rabbis, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, don't read the book. One ultra-Orthodox rabbi puts out a ban. No Jews are allowed to read this book. Shmuley says, I should split the royalty check with him after that <laughs> for the publicity I'm going to get. Well, anyway, January 18th, a Wednesday night, I'm praying. I'm reading about the controversies. Mm-hmm. This book's about to be released. And I get this tremendous burden in prayer. I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to say something. I'm supposed to speak into the midst of this. I wake up the next morning. It's all over me. Write your own book. Write a book that will answer his and will be the most unique contribution to Jewish ministry, Jewish outreach you've ever written, and the most eye-opening book for Christians you've ever written. Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to go a step further. When you read your book, Mike, a Christian will now read the Gospels and the book of Acts in a totally different light. They, most Christians don't really, they, they read the New Testament, but they don't understand the intricacies of the tensions that were going on between Paul and, and, and the rabbis, between Jesus and the rabbis. Yeah, and, and this will put it in a context. When they'll read a lot of Paul's writings, it's going to open up to them. So I get this burden, write the book and get it out now. Here's the funny thing, Sid. I had the manuscript for months Suddenly, out of the blue, write this book, get it out now. Well, through supernatural grace to write, and I mean forcing myself to go to sleep at 5 in the morning, and through supernatural work with a publisher, from the day that I went to write the book to the day the book came out and was in my hand was less than two and a half months. Never experienced something like this. So the real kosher Jesus answers Shmuley, shows where he went wrong in some of his thinking, and then takes the reader on a journey. The subtitle is Revealing the Mysteries of the Hidden Messiah. We take the reader on a journey and unfold who Jesus Yeshua really is, go through even some church history, how his real image has been obscured, and then ask the question, okay, is there kosher Jesus but unkosher Christianity? Did Paul change everything? We set the record straight and then open up the secrets, the, the secret of the, the hidden, invisible God who can be seen and, and take the reader on this journey. And- you even deal with, with writings from famous Jewish people, from Jewish writings that's accept, that are accepted by every rabbi that really show that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, there, there's the second chapter of the book, I, I go through how more and more Jews are reclaiming Jesus. I mean, famous, amazing statements from, from Einstein, from Martin Buber, from famous professors at Hebrew University and Oxford University. And they weren't believers, but they're like amazed with who Jesus Yeshua uh, Mike, is. I have to ask you a question, and I don't get this, but I want to know your spit. Number one, I have observed the two of you together. There is a genuine affection, genuine, which is hard to believe, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a Messianic Jewish scholar, a genuine affection both ways, not just one way. Now, how does he read your book? How does he have a debate with you, multiple debates with you, and not have a degree of of doubt? Maybe orthodoxy is wrong. Maybe Jesus is my Messiah. How can he do that? I don't get it. 
Well, look, let's let's pray and hope that he does have doubts. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, but he re- doesn't. He puts the front up. If he does, he doesn't show it. Right, and if he does, I don't know it either. To, to be totally to be totally fair to him, but but here's here's what I hope. I, I deal with it. I'm sorry. We'll pick up here on tomorrow's broadcast. Now, Mishpocha, we did this two-hour debate between Dr. Michael Brown and Shmuley Boteach. You will be on the edge of your seat. It is the most amazing throwback of 2,000 years. It's really a family feud. And when you see this, I, at the end... The Holy Spirit just exploded on me, and I shared a bit of testimony. You should see the way the rabbi handled that, but the anointing is so strong on this debate. The debate and Michael Brown's brand-new book, The Real Kosher Jesus, available for a gift of $30. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, Two six nine seven. My guest is red hot for the Messiah. That's that's an understatement for Dr. Michael Brown. As far as I'm concerned, he is the most outstanding Messianic Jewish scholar on the face of the map today. Uh, he's was handpicked by God for this assignment. Uh, when he became a uh, Jewish believer in Jesus as a young man, he had such an encounter with the Lord, just like I did that no one could talk him out of his faith, even his rabbi. But his rabbi really floored him one day uh, when he challenged him on, young man, do you speak Hebrew? Tell me about that, Mike. Yeah, we were, the rabbi and I became friends. He was, he was the new rabbi of the conservative synagogue where I've been bar mitzvah. So now I'm 16 years old, 17 years old. I'm reading the Bible day and night. I'm praying. And he's fresh out of seminary. He's about 10, 11 years older than me. And he, he challenges me. Look, you don't even know Hebrew. How, how can you talk to us? How can you explain? It, it, it'd be like a kid who knows two plus two equals four is, is going to lecture a physics professor somewhere right. or le- lecture sure. someone on calculus. He, he's finished. Or he's become a rabbi. Who are you? Right. <laughs> and he learned it from his father. He learned it from his father. Even though he was conservative, he wasn't really orthodox. His, his upbringing was more orthodox. So I told him, well, uh, in the meantime, I've got the Strong's Concordance, and in the back of the Strong's Concordance, there's a, there's a Hebrew dictionary. I, I remember what he said to me, meantime, shmeantime. If you can't <laughs> read the Hebrew, it doesn't mean anything. And then he brings me to meet ultra-Orthodox rabbis in Brooklyn. Now, I'm a believer at this point, about a year and a half. I've read the Bible, King James, through cover to cover about five times. I've been memorizing 20 verses a day for at least six months. So I've got about 4,000 verses memorized. I've got the Bible down cold. And, far- and you know you've You've experientially uh, come to know Jesus. You know him. He's transformed me. I was shooting heroin. I I was living in rebellion. I was lost. And and the Lord turned my life around. It's undeniable that he sought me out, that he convicted me, that he got hold of me, turned me around. Somebody asked me the other day when I got off drugs, did I go through rehab? I said, no, it was basically instant. God got hold of me and I was set free and that was basically that. So I knew that. And, And I had a wonderful fellowship with the Lord. I would meet with him when I'd pray, when I would be in his presence, the joy. It was undeniable, not just what he did, but who he was in my life. So what did, what did you do with this challenge? Well, what, the rabbis, these ultra-Orthodox rabbis, they take out their Hebrew Bible. Now, remember, they've been reading this since they were little kids. 
And, and they're pointing letter for letter because the little Hebrew I learned when I was bar mitzvah, I'd forgotten. So they're pointing letter for letter. Like they said, we're not, we're not, telling, we're, we're not lying to you. I feel like a little kindergartner, letter by letter. And I thought, I've got to learn this. So when I started college and said, to be honest, I only went to college in those days to honor my, my parents, to honor my father in particular, because they wanted me to go. And I've still had my hippie mentality, who needs college and all that. So I said, of course, I'll honor you. I'll go. I go to college and I thought I should start taking Hebrew. But they had modern Hebrew. I didn't, I didn't want to speak Hebrew. I wanted to read biblical Hebrew, and they're, they're pretty different. So I, I got a biblical Hebrew grammar. Rabbi recommended it, and I taught myself biblical Hebrew. And I thought, you know, I'm really interested in studying this more. So I, when I was in college, I said I should learn Arabic because that's like a sister language. And, but the New Testament was written in Greek. I should work on that. But Latin is also an important language. But, you know, when you do academic study, you need to learn German. And, but Yiddish, that's like our family language. And my, my dad spoke Yiddish before he spoke English. So I ended up taking six languages at the same time in college, which wasn't the smartest thing. But I went on to NYU. I did my master's and PhD in Near Eastern languages and literatures and ultimately worked with about 12, 13 different languages at, at different levels of proficiency. Well, so I have to believe your knowledge of Hebrew because of all these side languages that you mastered, some dozen or so that you speak, read, or write, uh, puts you in a class beyond most rabbis even. You see, the, the rabbis will be massively fluent in the, in the Hebrew literature and the related Aramaic literature and the Talmud, massively fluent, but with, within the walls of their tradition. In other words, if there's scientific study of the text, if there's a better way to read biblical Hebrew, there, there's a larger science to it. So by learning the surrounding languages and culture, it really enables you to do it. And, and yeah, I love the study. I, I love the study to this day. I, I don't work at, say, Babylonian today the way I used to, but, but I still love the study. Of the... <laughs> Did you get that Babylonian? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I, Babylonian. <laughs> it just sounds like Babel to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, these are amazing languages to study. It's exciting and all that. But but the fact of the matter is, I wanted to – it was personal integrity. I knew what God had done in my oh, life. Okay, but, but here's my question to you, the same the rabbi had for you. Yes, you had an experience with Jesus. A rabbi would call it an emotional experience. Um, yes, you found uh, a, a lot of scriptures that look like Jesus is the Messiah, but you don't know Hebrew. Now – after having studied Hebrew, studying 11 other Semitic languages, uh, memorizing most of the Old Testament, I might add, in Hebrew, um, is there anything that causes you to doubt that Jesus is the only way to God, the only Messiah of Israel, the only Messiah of the world? Nothing. That, nothing. nothing. Zero. Nothing. The more I've studied the more I've loved God with my heart and mind. The more I've studied, Sid, the surer and surer I've become. God is my witness. Any debate I've ever done, any challenge I've ever had from a rabbi, for years, for decades, I never, ever worry for a split second that anything is going to be raised that would cause me to question one iota of my faith. It's not just a matter of he changed my life. It's a matter of he is the one who is spoken of. Now, I, have, I haven't memorized quite that much of Scripture, but I've been in it over and over and over and over and taken all the challenges. And I have, I have no question. Any, I, I have less question about Jesus, Yeshua being the Messiah than I even question I'm sitting here in the room with you. It is the very bedrock and foundation of my life based on truth of Scripture, Sid. Okay. 
Let's go to the debate. This was a debate between one of the most outstanding Orthodox Jewish rabbis in America. Many people even consider him America's rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, and Dr. Michael Brown, uh, a top Messianic Jewish scholar, if not the top in the world. Uh, And uh, we're going to ask him what, uh, well, you'll hear my question. This is perhaps one of the most important questions I'm going to ask this evening. And I'll start with uh, Rabbi Boteach. In the Jewish community, and I was raised uh, in a traditional Jewish family, the rabbi is highly revered. He is our source of understanding of Judaism. What is the authority of the rabbis? Where do the rabbis get their authority to be in such a place, an honored place, before the Jewish community? First of all, I guess you don't pray at my synagogue. (laughs) It's high reverence. God willing, hopefully. Well, uh, Judaism, thank you, at least someone chuckled at that. Uh, Judaism is a religion of learning. Torah means instruction. It doesn't really even mean law. It means instruction. Torah from the word harah, to instruct, to, to guide. Because we believe that God gives us his law, the Torah, to help us guide our lives. And the rabbis are looked up to because they are the people who study the Torah. Mike, I wasn't satisfied with his answer. Where do the rabbis get their authority over the Jewish community? Basically, this would be the concept that that Shmuley was seeking to convey. When you have a law-based religion and you believe that that God wants you to live your life according to every detail of what he's given in the Torah, then the Torah teachers are the ones that are going to have the authority because you have to go to them, what does this text mean? How am I to live this out? And, And there's a text in Deuteronomy 17 which has basically been misapplied in rabbinic tradition. What the, the text in Deuteronomy 17 says, if you have some legal dispute, let's say there's an issue of bloodshed or something, so you go to the, the court, the highest court in your area. It could be the Le- Levitical priests, the judges, whoever's there, and you, and you share the case, and whatever their verdict is, you have to obey. If they, you can't violate it. They say go left, you go left, go right. You know, whatever the verdict is, you have to, you have to obey what they say. Well, it's the court system. Well, basically, that authority from Deuteronomy 17 has now been given to the rabbis. So if the rabbis say, go left, you go left. If the rabbis say, go right, you go right. If the rabbis say, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Messiah. If the rabbis say, he's not the Messiah, he's not the Messiah. The text has nothing to do with the rabbis, nor was that authority ever given to man. Well, even beyond that, uh, in the Talmudic writings, uh, they basically say the only voice of God on earth it's, it is the way I understand it. You correct me. The only real voice of God on earth is the majority of the rabbis. Right. Basically, they would say the spirit that was on the prophets is now on the rabbis. And you've got to be pragmatic, Sid. The Supreme Court comes to a 5-4 decision. That's the law. Okay. The so so if, if a voice from heaven says, go right, and the majority of the rabbis say, go left, what happens? The Torah is no longer in heaven. The Torah has been given to us to work out. And so we have there, to can't work be a, there can't be a voice from heaven? It would get overruled. Now, now here's what I believe, Sid. Oy Sid Which loosely means, oy vey. <laughs> What I believe, though, is it's easy to say the voice would be overruled until the voice actually speaks. <laughs> okay. Um, so the way I look at it, Mike, the rabbis do not have authority over the Jewish people from heaven. The rabbis do not have authority over the Jewish people, period. 
Correct me if I'm wrong. Here's how I'd look at it. They have been caretakers. They have been shepherds. Many of them have been fine people who've wanted to guard Israel and the Jewish people and keep them in what they believe is the Jewish calling, to be obedient to Torah and tradition. And, and that's However, good. That's right. good. I, I appreciate that, that. That's preserved our people in a sense. Right. And I appreciate that. However, when there is a conflict between what the rabbis say and what the scripture says, when there is a conflict between what the rabbis say and the Holy Spirit is saying, when there's a conflict between what the rabbis say and the Messiah is saying, it is incumbent on every Jew to respectfully say to the rabbis, I respect you, but I must obey God and his word, period. Doesn't it bother you with this wonderful friendship you've established with this rabbi that if he were to die in the state he is right now, he would not go to heaven. Does that bother you? Of course it bothers me deeply. It's, uh, I, I, I just, I don't get it. If there was a 1% chance that what we're saying is true, it's everything. It's all of eternity. How can he and others be so blind? Well, you know, they look at church history. They see a, a great misrepresentation of Jesus. Oh, I'll tell you what. <laughs> we got to pick up here on tomorrow's broadcast. One of the things uh, that the Orthodox rabbis feel strongly about is they have been entrusted uh, as the true teachers of Torah, and you can't understand Torah unless you understand the oral law or the Talmud. Uh, and, uh, but the problem is uh, this is much more than Moses got if he had got an oral law at all, uh, because how big is the oral law today, Dr. Brown? Oh, tens of thousands of volumes. So, so you, you, you think Moses got that at Mount Sinai? <laughs> well, see, see, the Jewish view would be that he got the principles of interpretation and, and specifics of interpretation so that he could transmit those on. The problem is we just don't find the evidence of that. The, the problem is out of all of the thousands of rabbinic and Jewish laws and traditions that have been developed over the centuries as the rabbis have zealously sought to preserve what they understood was, was Torah life, the fact is you don't find God ever dealing with those in the Scripture. Is, is the Talmud mentioned in the New Testament or the Old Testament at all? Oh, the, the Talmud itself, the Babylonian Talmud is the primary one, is, is put in writing in the 5th and 6th centuries, so about 500 but, but, years but, but, after but, but, the time but, but, of they, Jesus. But is the oral law mentioned in the New Testament or the Old Testament? The traditions are mentioned. Jesus speaks about the traditions of the fathers, and sometimes— I thought that came from Fiddler the Roop, but <laughs> go ahead. No, the, the traditions of the fathers—here's the deal. Some traditions are fine. Some traditions are great. The fact going to a synagogue, that was a tradition. Jesus went to the synagogue. That's fine. Not all traditions are wrong, but what, what Jesus dealt with was this. When the traditions took authority over the word, he said, for example, in Mark 7 to some of the Jewish teachers, you have a fine way of setting aside the word of God with your traditions. Every church has traditions. Every religious group has traditions. Every human being has traditions. That's fine. But when the traditions take on a divine authority that they don't have, and when the traditions come in conflict with the word of God, that's where the challenge is. Sid, think about this. And, and I lay this out in depth in my book, The Real Kosher Jesus. Yeshua has a conflict with many of the religious leaders. Rabbi Shmuley, my dear friend, says, no, that, that didn't really happen. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. The rabbis loved him. They were all in harmony. It was the corrupt high priest and the Romans that had a problem with mm -hmm. Jesus. Okay. 
And yeah, the corrupt high priest did, and so did the Romans. But he had a lot of conflict even with the Pharisees. Of course. Why? Because he was a prophet. Just like Jeremiah had conflict. When Jeremiah spoke of the destruction of the first temple, they didn't applaud him. They were ready to kill him. And you have texts like Jeremiah 26 that say all the other prophets and all the priests and, and all the political establishment, they all wanted to kill him. That's what happens when a prophet speaks. A prophet speaks with divine authority. And unless we understand Jesus Yeshua to be not just a rabbi, but to be a prophet sent by God, the last and greatest prophet, the prophet like Moses and even greater than Moses, unless we see Yeshua like that, we don't understand the New Testament. And, and, and the rabbis need to say, oh, he was the one speaking with divine authority. We had our traditions. He was speaking with divine authority. So let me ask you a question. When you read through the Old Testament, when you read through the Torah, does it say, well, Moses said this and Aaron said this and they had a debate? No. The Lord spoke to Moses and, the, and, and Moses spoke to Aaron. Do you hear the prophets say, well, Isaiah said this and Jeremiah said this and Zechariah said this, so we're going to debate it. No, no. Thus says and, and, and the this, Lord. And that's what the, that's what the rabbinic writings, the Talmud, is all about. It's debates. Um, one rabbi says this, another rabbi says this, and the majority of the rabbis say, but this is the conclusion because this is the answer. So obviously, half the rabbis weren't inspired and half were just based on their standards. And then there's the view that says they're both inspired because they're both the words of God because they're both streams of tradition. And you say, oh, okay, that's a very nice concept, but number one, it's self-contradictory. Uh, like, the, uh, let's see what Rabbi uh, Shmuley Boteach has to say to, about that question, question during the debate on what is the oral tradition. It's very easy to prove that the oral tradition uh, was given to Moses at Sinai. It's very easy. I'll, I'll just use a single proof. The Bible says that on the Feast of Tabernacles, in Hebrew we call it Sukkot, you have to take a pre Hadar, you have to take a choice fruit, and you have to take other uh, things that go from the ground, and you have to wave it. This is where the, the, the tradition of the lulav, of the palm, comes from, which survives in Christianity until today with Palm Sunday, etc. Um, when Jesus is welcome, they said, Hoshana, that's the Hoshanas are part of this tradition of taking the lulav. Now listen to what it says. It says, you have to take a choice fruit. So imagine Moses comes down. Let's say Mike is right. Torah doesn't say anything about an oral interpretation of the law. So Moses comes down from Sinai. He says, hey, I was just talking to God. And he said, on tabernacle, you have to take a choice fruit. And the Jews look at him and say, which fruit? And Moses says, I don't know. He didn't say. There's no oral tradition. Now imagine what the synagogue would have looked like that Sunday. It would have looked like farmer's market. One guy hears a choice fruit. That, to him, it's a cluster of grapes. He's waving grapes. Ah, the next guy but, says, I love pomegranates. But, then but the guy walks but in really. with his kids holding a giant watermelon, you know, trying to wave it. But interestingly, you will see that all Jews use a citron. They use a, called an esrog in Hebrew, as that choice fruit because, of course, it was interpreted as soon as it was given. Otherwise, the whole Torah is mumbo-jumbo. It makes absolutely no sense. Okay, but the question was, where in Torah does it say there's an oral law? Oh, it says, it says in the book of Deuteronomy that you must listen to all of the sages who instruct you in that, in that day. Well, Dr. Michael Brown, why don't you respond on this radio interview to that? I, I'll tell you, that was such a, an eye-opening debate 
for Christians and for Jews. And in the audience, we had Christians and we had Jews that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And we had a lot of fruit in that <laughs> from that debate. But go ahead. Yeah. And, and again, Rabbi Shmuley is doing a great job of representing a traditional Jewish viewpoint there that the Torah is given is ambiguous. It says don't work on the Sabbath, and there's a death penalty if you work, but it doesn't tell you what work is, and, and, and everything has to have these detailed laws. Well, the problem is when you get into the rabbinic laws, it's not just a little clarification. It's hundreds of laws. It's thousands of laws. It takes years to master what the laws are, and yet God just spoke it to Israel, and they said, yes, we'll obey, and there's no evidence of those thousands of laws within the Torah. So first thing, when Rabbi Shmuley said, the, the Torah says, follow the sages. No, it doesn't say that. That's a misuse. We talked about it yesterday. It's a misuse of Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is just speaking of the court system that God would establish. When you have a legal dispute, you go there and they settle it. It wasn't saying that the rabbis can tell you what time you get up in the morning, what to pray, how to pray it, what words to say. What... Right, but, but if that is their authority, if that establishes their authority and it's a misquote, then what about the whole structure of rabbinic Judaism as far as influencing our Jewish people? It, it, it has exerted an authority over our people that for all the good it's done in preserving our people and for all the beauty of the traditions, it's ultimately been detrimental in terms of the rabbis taking an authority God never gave. How, Sid, how could that be for the good of our people? Well, when, as, when far a, as, as far as I'm concerned, Mike, rabbinic Judaism, has put a picket fence around Jewish people to prevent Jewish people from thinking for themselves as to who Jesus is. And that outweighs all the good that they've accomplished. R Rabbinic Judaism would basically say that, that we in this generation are less than the people of the last generation, and they were less than the people of the last. There's a Talmudic tradition that says if this generation is, is, is men, then the former generation was angels. And if this generation is, is donkeys, the former generation was men. In other words, each generation is further away from the revelation. So, Sid, who are you and I to argue with the rabbis, because they learned it from the generations past, but, and the generations past but, but, settled it, and therefore you— Sid, you don't think for yourself about who Jesus is because the rabbis who were there rejected him, and that settles yeah, it. Yeah, but how about all the rabbis that accepted him? In other words, some rabbi whose name I don't even know said Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Another rabbi whose name I don't even know said Jesus was the Messiah. And I am living my life based on some rabbi whose name I don't even know that might have been on the wrong side of the fence. But Sid, you're thinking too individualistically. You see, you have to think as part of the people of Israel— and the people of Israel have the traditions and the laws. And ultimately, here's what's so funny, and it's kind of ironic. There is no study tradition more intense than the rabbinic study tradition. You talk about people using their minds and thinking day and night and wrestling out naughty problems. But you must think within the walls. You cannot think outside of those walls. And for any Jewish person listening, especially traditional Jew, you know there's sometimes you question the rabbis. You know there's some contradictions you see. You know there's some things that don't line up right. Could it be that these rabbis, as sincere as they are, are wrong on the most fundamental thing of all? Who is the Messiah? Could it be they're wrong there? Oh, yeah. Use your mind just within these parameters. If you dare think outside of the traditions, now there's something the matter with you. But— when you go back to that uh, conservative rabbi I was talking about on Monday, when they, this conservative rabbi uh, had the debate with a Christian minister, 
uh, when, when you go back to him and he says the foundation of God that has been given to us, we know is the book of Genesis, and he tosses it and says it's not inspired. You can believe anything you want. Hey, which rabbis then? The conservative rabbis, the reform rabbis, the orthodox rabbis, the ultra-orthodox rabbis? You say, well, they all agree that Jesus is not the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? They have so many other disagreements. Could it be they got this wrong? Of course it is. And as a matter of fact, I want you to get the DVD, this amazing DVD of the debate, Who is the Real Kosher Jesus? And Mike Brown's brand new book, The Real Kosher Jesus. What an eye-opener. You will understand the scriptures. You'll understand what the high tension that occurs when you read the New Testament. You'll read it through different eyes, all available for a gift of $30. Call our order-only line, one 800 447 2697. 1-800-447-2697. I put the question to Rabbi Bateach, and I said, Rabbi, we don't have a temple today. Therefore, according to Torah, you can't have a, a blood sacrifice unless it's done in the temple. What do we Jews do about the blood today? And this was his answer. The Messiah in Judaism is someone who must fulfill the Messianic prophecies. And the idea that a Messiah comes along to, uh, to absolve us of sin, and Mike saying before that we need blood because the temple no longer is in existence, Mike is well aware of the fact that the most famous story of repentance in the entire Bible is a story of Jonah where not one drop of blood is even spilled. Jonah sends God, God sends Jonah to the city of Nineveh, and Nineveh says, you guys are all toast unless you repent. And there's not a single blood sacrifice. There's not a single animal brought. They repented of their ways. You Ra- don't Rabbi, have to have blood sacrifice. Two minutes. And the suffering servant, the idea of a suffering servant, uh, which you're quoting from Isaiah 53, I mean, clearly, it, 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 if you want to just get uh, literal, it can't be Jesus because Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both in Mark and, and in Matthew, where it says there that whoever it's speaking of goes silently to his death and doesn't complain at all. All right, we're back in the studio now, and that was an excerpt from the debate. It's the most amazing tension. We had unsaved Jewish people in the audience. We had Christians in the audience. And you could, uh, I I mean, the the video footage of the reactions uh, and the, the tension that was going on, it's just like reading the New Testament. So, Mike, how do you handle Jonah? No blood. God never commanded the Gentile nations to build a temple and to offer blood sacrifices. That was the role of Israel as a priestly nation. The Gentile nations needed to repent and turn to God. It was up to the Jews to be the priestly nation to offer sacrifices, not only on their own behalf, but on behalf of the sins of the world. There's even a a rabbinic tradition that when the temple was being destroyed, the second temple was being destroyed in the year 70 of this era, that one of the rabbis said, foolish Romans, foolish Gentiles, who's going to intercede for you now? Who's going to do this for you if you're destroying the temple? So Israel, as the priestly nation, offered the sacrifices, interceded between human beings and God, and the Gentiles, the people of Nineveh and Assyrians, they just had to repent and turn to God. God never gave them blood sacrifices. But here's the thing. 
Blood sacrifices are the heart and soul of the atonement system in the Torah. Read through the entire five but, books but, of Moses. Wait a second, Mike. There, there is mention of other sacrifices, uh, other offerings besides blood sacrifices in Torah. The fact of the matter is there's one mention of flower offerings. If someone was too poor to even, even bring uh, an animal or a bird. Right. But, but in, in point of fact, the flower offering was still offered on the altar, was added in, was thrown on top of the, the fire offerings, the blood sacrifices that are already there. And no Jew so ever the thought— fo- So the foundation was always an animal— uh, uh, sacrifice. Yeah, what Jew in the world ever says, I have flour, I can make atonement, I have flour. It's, it's, it's folly. The, the fact is, the heart and soul, the foundation of the entire atonement system was blood sacrifices. Repentance is important, but go through the entire Torah and see how many times repentance or confession of sin is mentioned. Just a few. Blood sacrifices over and over. Go to the Day of Atonement, the central day of atonement in the biblical calendar for the Jewish people worldwide. To this day, it's centered on blood sacrifices to purge the tabernacle, to cleanse the people, to atone for their sins, a sacrifice to carry the sins away into the well, wilderness. What, what about Leviticus seventeen eleven? Leviticus seventeen eleven says plainly that God has given the blood on the altar because it's the blood that makes atonement for our souls by reason of the life. In other words, when there's the blood is drained out, the life force is gone. So it is life for life, as some rabbinic commentators understood. It is substitutionary. I'm guilty. Instead of me dying, the blood sacrifice is, it dies instead. So, so here, here's the whole thing. You take that away. Yeah, repentance is still important. Yes, prayer is still important. Yet these other things are important, but you've taken away the heart and soul of the entire atonement system. And once those are taken away, Sid, there is no atonement either as the Jewish people, as a nation. For 1,900 plus years, we have had no national atonement, and God has said no to us every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, for almost 2,000 years, or God provided a better way. Isn't it fascinating that the same one who said he would fulfill the law and the prophets, he would bring to fullness the things that they were speaking of and pointing to, was also one that prophesied the destruction of the temple. So Jesus Yeshua the last and greatest prophet, the Messiah, and the one to whom the sacrificial system was pointing, said, take my life. I will be the ransom. And in point of fact, when he was going to his death, when, when he was being tried, he didn't resist. When the scripture says in Isaiah 53, he went as a lamb to the slaughter, he did. It was striking to everyone that he didn't defend himself, that he didn't try to fight. Why? Because he came as a lamb. Said, there is atonement for our people. There is forgiveness for our people. And it is found in the perfectly righteous one. It says in Isaiah 53, he would be an asham, a guilt offering, a reparation offering, that he would take the place of the sins of the people. Isaiah 53, 6 lays it out so plainly. The Hebrew begins with kulanu and it ends with kulanu. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He takes our sin, and when we turn to God in repentance, God wash me, God cleanse me, give me a brand new heart, give me a brand new start. That's what happens through the power of Messiah's blood. Now, the, the rabbi raised the apologetic of Jesus when he was dying on the cross. Uh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, he's pointing to Psalm 22. 
in saying those words, he's pointing us to Psalm 22, which is one of the most amazing psalms uh, written by David, according to Psalm 22. But speaking of something more than David's suffering, some rabbis say it's a parable of the suffering of the people of Israel through the centuries. Yeshua is saying, look at this. It's, it's a psalm of an ideal righteous sufferer. It's a psalm of someone who comes to the jaws of death. The description there, it looks like the description of a crucified person. You read it and say, That's, that sounds like a crucified person being described there. And, and crucifixion was unknown in the world at that time. It was devised hundreds of years later by the Persians. So he was looking into the future when David wrote that. He's speaking, beyond, he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking poetically of his own sufferings, but prophetically speaking beyond them. And here's what's amazing. He gets delivered from death, and the deliverance is so great that he calls for all the ends of the earth to praise God. It even says that, that the ends of the earth will turn to God. Who died? What righteous one died was delivered from the jaws of death, and his deliverance from death is so profound that the ends of the earth turn to God. Who else is that, Sid? So Jesus hanging on the cross draws our attention to that psalm and, and the idea that, well, he wouldn't lift his voice or cry out. It's talking about resisting arrest. It's talking about resisting death. Clearly there in Isaiah 53, like a lamb uh, going to, to slaughter, like okay, a sheep but, before well, her shearers is done. What was the real reason at that moment that Jesus cried out that prophetic psalm, Psalm 22, by King David, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? It gets us looking at the psalm, number one, and number two, it gets us to understand that at that moment, he's bearing the guilt and the sin of the world. At that moment, he is taking the punishment and the wrath how that could, you and I deserve. How, how could anyone bear the sins of the world? I mean, that is beyond my comprehension. Think, think of this. He and his father enjoyed perfect fellowship from before the creation of the world. He, he said he didn't do anything unless he saw his father do it. He said, it. the father's always with me because I only do what pleases him. That's how he lived. And now he is the one in a public way taking on our punishment, taking on our guilt. He did not become a, a sinful person. He took the penalty of our sin. It, it, who can imagine what was happening in the heart of God towards his son at that moment? Who can imagine? It was not just crucifixion. Who can imagine what Yeshua bore for us? And, and this is what I want our Jewish people to understand. We need a Messiah like him. We need a Messiah that we can identify with in the midst of our suffering. We need a Messiah that's not just high and lofty and going to come riding on a white horse one day. We suffered at Auschwitz, our people did. We suffered in the Crusades and the Inquisitions of the pogroms. We've suffered through all of our history. We need to look at a Messiah that suffered like we did and more, yet was perfectly innocent. One that can say, I understand your suffering and I have the remedy for suffering because all suffering is ultimately due to us being estranged from God in a fallen, broken world. And Messiah brings us back. It's the Messiah we need. It's the Messiah of the scriptures. He was sinless. He was the only person that ever walked as a man, sinless. And when he, it says, your sins have separated you from God. Therefore, one sin would have separated Jesus from God. But the sins of the whole world, no wonder God couldn't look at him. Yeah, and, and at that moment, at that moment, the feeling was of one being forsaken and abandoned by God. But that's not the end of the psalm. That's the beginning of the psalm. 
And, and I, I, I wish that every Jewish person would read this. In my book, The Real Kosher Jesus, I have a whole chapter on the secret of the suffering Messiah. And not just how biblical this concept is, how Jewish this concept is. A question that uh, many Christians don't have a clue about, and many Jewish people don't have a clue about, is what happens to a Jewish person uh, when they die from a rabbinic viewpoint. Uh, let's see what uh, Rabbi Shmuley Boteach had to say. When a Jew dies, what happens to them? Their soul could go to this place of Gehenna for up to 12 months, which is why we say the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish, for 11 months. If you did it for 12, you're saying, wow, that was the worst person ever. If you do it for 11, you're uh, showing that they have and, some and redeeming what? graces. Um, yeah, they, the vast, majority go, the vast majority right. go into this place called okay. heaven until such time as the resurrection of the dead will bring their soul into a body where we will live eternally in a perfected state here on and, this earth. And what happens to a non-Jew that dies? A non-Jew who lives, who, a, dies. who lives a righteous life goes to the same place as Jews. And the Jews have always believed that. Well before any kind of interfaith dialogue began, you do not have to be a Jew to be saved. We do not claim an exclusivity or copyright on truth. We believe that okay. all are God's children. Dr. Brown, did I understand him right? The worst that happens to a Jewish person uh, when they die is uh, they, they suffer for 11 or 12 months. Uh, and, and by the way, I asked the rabbi, what is the suffering? And uh, the suffering is, well, you see all the ways you've hurt other people throughout your whole life. Uh, that's sure a different view of the suffering I see about hell. Uh, so the worst that happens is you live a horrible life, uh, like maybe even an Adolf Hitler, and in 12 months, uh, after seeing all the bad things you did, then you go to the same place uh, that the righteous Jews go to. I don't—did I understand that right? Oh, oh you did. You can, you can argue— that in the first century, there were Jews who believed that there was eternal punishment. And there are Talmudic traditions that speak of the, the totally wicked person goes down, means to hell, and never comes up. The totally righteous person goes straight up. And everybody else, which is the vast majority of the human race, they go down for a little while and they come up. Well, that they go down for a little while and come up is basically what traditional Judaism or Judaism as a whole embraces now. So the concept is the very worst person would suffer for a year. But no one's that bad, so 11 months. That's why you pray the mourner's Kaddish. If you're a family member, like you did for your dad, there's a family member uh, dies or your dad dies or something, so you go to the synagogue. But my dad used to believe that if I would do that for him, he wouldn't have to spend as many months suffering. Yeah, it would help him out. It's, it's yeah. not exactly like, but it's similar to what Catholics believe about purgatory, right. you pray for the dead, and so on. Here's, here's the idea. It's, it's a great concept. I mean, I, I'd love it if it was true. Well, Wonder, every, wonderful. Everyone would become a Jew. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wonderful <laughs> if true, but where, where is that written? What's the foundation for it? What do we do with Daniel 12, 2, which is in the Hebrew Scriptures, that says many who sleep in the dusty earth, not meaning a majority, but many meaning lots and lots and lots of people, many who sleep in the dusty earth will rise, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Number one, there's no middle ground. In the Torah, there is blessing or cursing. There is no middle ground. In, in, in the Proverbs, there, there is the righteous and the wicked. There's no middle ground. So that's the first thing. Everybody rises. People go one place or the other, and it's permanent. Whatever happens is permanent and irreversible, and you can't change it. 
And even the idea of some of the suffering is that you feel guilt for what you did. I'm sure there's guilt. Guilt's one of the most terrific things, but, but there's more than that. We suffer the judgment of God. We, we suffer the punishment of our sins. And Sid, our sins are worse than we realize. Human beings are more guilty in God's sight than we realize. According to the Torah, Genesis 8, the reason God has not wiped out the earth again with a flood is not because we've improved, but because our wickedness is such as a human race that he'd have to wipe us out all the time. So he said, I'm never going to do that again because man's thoughts are only evil continually from the days of his youth. The fact of the matter is that we receive mercy from God all the time and don't even know it. And if we reject the ultimate mercy, Messiah's death on our behalf, Messiah taking our sins, Messiah paying for our sins, if we reject that sin, we're lost. We have, what are we going to do? Stand before God one day and say, well, I was pretty good. I didn't commit adultery in my mind as much as the next guy. I didn't hate my heart as much as the next guy. I wasn't as selfish as the next guy. No, no, we're, we're guilty. And you can drown in 20 feet of water or you can drown in 100 feet of water. Either way, you're still going to drown. We reject God's mercy. We're lost, and there's no way out, and there's no turning back, and there's no exit card. Zero. Uh, you know, Mike, uh, to me, uh, the strongest apologetic that there is, that Jesus is the Messiah, I had an opportunity at this debate because it, it, it was in context. I shared about my Orthodox Jewish father, uh, uh, and I went to my father, and the last thing in the world that he wanted to believe was Jesus is the Messiah. The last thing he wanted to believe. And I read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah from a Tanakh, a Jewish scriptures, that my Orthodox rabbi inscribed something to me in, in the cover of it. Uh, and my father said, stop, you're reading about Jesus. And I, I had a chance to show Rabbi Boteach that Tanakh, and he looked at it. When you see the debate, and you will see it, I know you're going to get this DVD, uh, that I had the opportunity to read most of Isaiah 53. You did a, a Ph.D. on the 53rd chapter of Isaiah in reference to healing. Um, Tell me the strongest reason in Isaiah 53 that it speaks of Jesus and not some of the apologetics it's really speaking about the Jewish people or something like that. Really, Sid, from beginning to end of the text, it's the strongest apologetic. And, and we were both pleased that, that Rabbi Shmuley respectfully let you share all that. I mean, was your, you were hosting a debate, but he let you share all that. He, he, got a, he, he had his reaction but you talk about a powerful, intense moment. Boy, it was. I, you know, I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me how I'd be able to get away with it. And, I, and the Holy Spirit was right. But go ahead. Yeah, and, and he had his reaction to it, and the I audience know. heard the whole thing. It was, it was quite amazing. But you start in Isaiah 52, 13, going on to 53, 12, and it speaks of one who's going to be so highly exalted that the rabbi said he's even going to be more exalted than Abraham, Moses, or the angels. But first, he's going to be terribly disfigured and, and not even recognized as a human being so disfigured. And then the message about him. Excuse me. This was written 800 to 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth. You know, so it, it, this was, wasn't written after the fact. No, 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 Sid. Only 700. Okay. I mean, the, right, the, that's the point. Seven, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. Who could have imagined this? So he's going to be highly exalted. But he's going to suffer terribly first. 
And the message about him when kings hear it, <gasps> never heard such a thing. And then it unfolds. Who believed our report? Who, who's believed this message we're carrying? He didn't grow up significantly. He was like a nobody. Nazareth? Carpenter's son? Na- that's what they thought. He lives in Nazareth. It's a no, nowhere land. Just an obscure guy. He grows up. Nothing special about him. But then here's what happens. He ends up sitting in for us. He ends up taking our place. We think he's dying because he's guilty. This is what the text says. We think he's dying because he's guilty. Only afterwards do we realize "Ah, it was our sicknesses he was carrying. It was our sins he was bearing. And by his wounds, at the cost of his wounds, there's healing for us. And yes, I I did my PhD in the Hebrew word for healing in its ancient Near Eastern context. Restoration, restoration for the whole person at the cost of his wounds. And then it goes on to describe how he's he's taken away to prison and to judgment, how he goes as a lamb to the slaughter. And then it speaks of him not only dying a violent death, the Hebrew is in the plural, they're speaking of a violent death, but it even speaks of his, his grave, and he ends up, he's appointed with the wicked, but he ends up with his, his tomb is with the rich. I mean, it's in detail the way it unfolds. And then he's going to see light, see the light of life is the way it reads in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In other words, he's going to resurrect. He's going to have a future. He's going to make himself a guilt offering. He is going to make many righteous, and God's going to reward him because he interceded for sinners and was numbered with the transgressors. It is the clearest presentation of the gospel through a Jewish narrative anywhere in the entire Bible. And the revelation is we didn't understand what was happening. (laughs) Who does that speak of? Rabbis, sincere rabbis, devoted Jews around the world. It it starts out with who will believe the report of the prophets? I mean, it's even saying today there will be those that will not believe these straightforward reports of the prophets. And, and people say, well, where? Counter-missionaries, rabbis say, where does it say we have to believe? Well, Isaiah 53.1, who's believed our report? This is the report we are now giving. Who has believed it? And, and you know, we have Zechariah 12.10 to bring in another text. For he beat to Eliah to share the car that, that the Jewish people, in particular living in Jerusalem, the Jewish people will look to the one they pierce. The day will come when the eyes of understanding will be opened on a national level. But it says in 2 Corinthians 3, when anyone, any Jewish person turns to the, to the Lord, the veil is lifted. All of us, Jew and Gentile, before we came to faith, had a veil over our eyes. But there's a specific promise. When the Jewish people turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. But there have been times in history that the veil has lifted on multitudes of Jewish it's people. It's lifting now, And this is going on, and especially in Israel. And if Jesus hasn't been your Messiah and Lord, repent, because he's coming back soon. Tell him you're sorry. Believe the blood of a Jesus is strong enough to wash away your sins. Ask him to live inside of you and become your Lord. Write for the DVD. <laughs> You'll be on the edge of your seat. Who is the real kosher Jesus? The debate. And then the book right off the press by Dr. Michael Brown, The Real Kosher Jesus, available for a gift of $30. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. O-R-G. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, 
Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.